0: Uh, This room contains lots of different energies. There's some very deep, quiet, internal energies. And then there's a lot of energetic, excited, slash, (laughs) uh, intense, um, connecting energies. so I, I wanted to give a, a talk that hopefully would be relevant to, um, to all the energies here and, and all the minds and hearts that are here, that we're sharing this evening. Something that would be both uh, relevant to um, the internal aspect of practice and the external Aspect, as the Buddha says, both internally and externally, one should develop mindfulness. And I thought I'd start with a, a passage that I love from Be Here Now, my Bible many years ago, where Ram Das says, There is, in addition to the up and down cycle of practice, which I'm sure you're all quite familiar with by now an in and out cycle that is there are stages at which you feel pulled into inner work and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and to get on with it then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace both of these parts of the cycle are a part of one's sadhana one's practice for what happens to you in the marketplace helps you grow in your meditation. And what happens to you in meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. So for those who are leaving tomorrow, uh, your practice isn't ending Hopefully you understand that. It's just entering a new phase where you can bring what you've been cultivating here and understanding here to the messy, exciting, challenging, glorious world of samsara. <laughs> <laughs> in all its glory. I say that both uh, hopefully uh, remembering that samsara and nirvana are one, as it's often said, that you can wake up in our daily life in a, in a different way, not with the quiet, not with the, the deep focus or concentration, uh, typically, that would be um, more available uh, on a cushion in a month long like this. But um, to see all the ways that the mind and the heart get attached, all the ways that it can open, all the ways that it can truly connect and be inspired and uh, be moved to make a difference, so, I want to talk tonight about seeing our practice in a wider perspective, and hopefully it will be relevant to both both groups, those staying and those leaving. Uh, a few nights ago, um, Devin gave a, a beautiful talk on the uh, awakening heart and um going to follow up on some threads that, that she spoke of. One particular um, phrase that I want to uh, revisit uh, is a uh, quoting of uh, Shopkar from uh, who, the author of uh, the brilliant piece of Dharma, The Flight of the Garuda, where he says that awareness is intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. That's the nature of awareness, as this great Tibetan master spoke of it. It's true that we are seeing more and more through this sense of self, through the illusion of separation, understanding emptiness, the emptiness of a separate self. And in that nothing separate, we become more and more aware of this concept, this reality of interconnectedness. And in a world of interconnectedness, we all affect each other. We affect each other. Just here in the retreat, you know, somebody, um, well, I don't have to go into all the ways that we affect each other. Just think of the dining room or the, the walking meditation or the uh, yoga. I'm sure you're aware that you're not doing this alone. And we're very sensitive to how we affect each other in in the subtlest, smallest ways. Just one little projection or wondering if that was a look that somebody was giving you. Your mind can go for hours on that, can't it? And certainly that's true outside and in the world where we're interacting all the time. So we're affected by each other and we affect each other both in our interpersonal relationships and we're also affected by society and the messages that we are taking in and how we process them. The, uh, the question of cultural conditioning uh, has come up a few times in in the last few days, particularly as we try to sort out how does equanimity with all of this fit, and I want to talk a, a bit about that in this wider context. We're constantly receiving messages and um, and taking in and processing them in ways that are uh, affected by our own conditioning that we've been raised in. in uh, a few examples. I forget if I mentioned or if I showed this. Did I show this ad, that the gold shivers, here? No? Okay. Well, I usually show it in reference to um, awakening joy and just seeing through the, uh, uh, where happiness really lies, but I want to share it tonight in a, in a different context. So this is the gold shivers, beautiful woman, Draped in gold, very happy, at least for the picture. And this is the ad. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. (laughs) Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a two-page ad, you can see her while I read the second page. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. (laughs) From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. Among life's pleasures count this deeply felt euphoria as unique the only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. (laughs) It's brilliant, isn't it? You might not even care about jewelry, but you look at that and say, I I think I'd like some of that too. Or the other response, you can't fool me. I know that's just madmen fanning desires. I'm a critical consumer. (laughs) However, it works. Even as critically uh, discerning as you might think you are, it works. Those messages get in. That's why Coca-Cola would pay millions of dollars for 30 seconds of your attention because you see, oh, happiness, Coke, bottle. And that's why um, uh, men have an image of success that they've got to live up to, of power and, and, uh, and, and prosperity. And uh, beautiful women uh, th- can't be thin enough, many of them, because of these messages. They get in. All of these different kinds of messages get in. And we have to be really careful and understanding and seeing how we're affected by them. And also understand our environment that we've been exposed to growing up, how that affects us too. I read um, many years ago, I I saw this poster in... um, um, U.C. Berkeley, where I live, right near the university, and there was a a poster of a, a little boy, very sad face, and the um, the caption on it said, um, "A child raised in a home with domestic violence is seven hundred times more likely." experience domestic violence in their adult life. And when I read that, it just kind of stopped me in my tracks and seeing, oh wow, who is to blame here? If there is just a a legacy of conditioning passed on from generation to generation. So it's important to uh, understand the culture's conditioning, and understand our own conditioning, and learning how we've been conditioned by society and whatever upbringing we've um, we've experienced, and uh, just getting a glimpse not only of what we know but also of what we don't know as a as a, a white male in this culture. It's important that I take a look and understand my own blindness and see what I don't know or try to to learn and grow in that. Not with guilt, but with compassion and commitment. And I think it's important for all of us to understand whatever conditioning we've taken in and been raised in. Because as we do, we start to see through that conditioning to the place that We're touching here on retreat, beyond all of that conditioning. And the more we can understand that, our practice can uh, truly make a difference, not just for ourselves, but to bring more consciousness into the world. And to see that our practice is not just for ourselves in this world of interconnectedness, but has a much greater rippling effect. And I want to read an excerpt from um, one of my favorite passages. Did I read Bhikkhu Bodhi? No, I didn't hear. The Challenge to Buddhists. I always forget what I've read or not. This is, um, or because I give a number of different talks in different places, so I've given like a few different talks in the last couple of weeks besides here. Anyway, one of my favorite essays, and I highly recommend it, called... A Challenge to Buddhists by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is one of the great, the premier translator of the Pali Canon. All the thick books you see, the Majjhima Nikaya and the, the Samyutta Nikaya and Ang- Anguttara Nikaya, all of the, the middle length and uh, discourses and connected discourses, they're translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who also in the last. 10 or 15 years, has become this incredibly inspiring activist wanting to um, encourage people to see their practice in a a larger context. This is what he says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey, that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic and political injustice as well as the planet who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This in my view is a deeply moral challenge, marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. A watershed moment to see our practice not just for ourselves, but as Devin was talking about, the awakening heart that... um, that shines and and makes a difference. This is from Nyoshul Kempo, a great Tibetan master. We are not practicing for ourselves alone, since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed in us, and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas in training, strive to embody. So here we are at this time in our society, in humanity's evolution, um, at a real watershed moment in so many ways. We are in a crisis on many fronts. And you know, I'm sure the 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 Chinese characters for crisis are danger plus opportunity. So not to feel like, oh, we're just heading in one way. I think I mentioned here the other night, I forget that uh, um, statement that I love that puts it in perspective. We're in a race between fear and consciousness. We're in a race between fear and consciousness. So the more consciousness that we can bring into the world, that each of us brings our own little share of consciousness, as much as we can develop, as much as you've been developing here, has an effect and touches others and helps awaken that. Because we do affect each other. Just like when you're around somebody who has a deep connection and peace or uh, has a, a, a radiant heart. It touches you, doesn't it? And to think that you, in sitting here, in practicing, are not only finding peace in yourself, but are an agent of consciousness. Or maybe you can think of it as being used by consciousness and goodness, to just awaken itself through through everyone uh, that we encounter, a few uh, um, last week it was uh, Aaron gave a talk on uh, liberative dependent arising transcendental or liberative dependent arising, and uh, if you recall the um, the process started out with suffering can be a supportive condition for faith to arise. Suffering can lead to faith, just as I think i re- I remember asking how many how many of you and so many hands went up, how suffering has um, motivated you to look for, For answers and and come to, to practice the Dharma. And the same is true not only on a personal level, but on a societal level. That, unfortunately, the way it works is that suffering is generally what it takes to wake us up as a species. That's not Wrong or bad—it's just the same principle that we're experiencing in here. How so many are going around the world in their lives uh, in this world, sleepwalking or complacent, or not seeing that samvega—the the meaninglessness of of life as it's normally lived—and we've been. We've heard a wake-up call somewhere, and in the same way, the, tr- the, the same is true of our society. And right now, we're in a lot of suffering. And the planet is in a very, um, or a life on the planet, the planet's going to be going on anyway. But life on the planet is in a very precarious place. Um, but that's precisely what wakes us up, and the way I see it, humanity will wake up sooner or later, you know whether it's on a on a um, climate. Uh, perspective, you know, when enough um, hurricanes and tsunamis and wildfires, you know, hit hit major first world areas, that's that's when we start waking up. Little by and we are waking up. I mean, just think from 15 years ago when people who were or 20 years ago when people who were into climate change were seen as kind of very fringe. Now it's very Different, And although there's a race, 15 years is very quick in shifting the way things are understood. So we're going to wake up sooner or later, say on a planetary level, and the way I see it, why not do everything we can to help make it sooner rather than later? Because the sooner, the less suffering. And there's, gone, there's suffering now, and there will continue to be suffering. But why not uh, have that, trans- that liberative uh, uh, process uh, go as quickly as we can? And there are a few encouraging um, um, perspectives or prophecies that uh, that you might take heart in. One is, um, Arnold Toynbee, the great historian from the 20th century, uh, who said near the end of his life, near the, uh, uh, he he passed away towards the latter part of the 20th century. He said, he thought looking back on the 20th century, that perhaps the most significant development will have been Buddhism coming to the West. Because, and whether you call it Buddhism or the Dharma or consciousness or whatever, just having this perspective of interconnectedness plus all the principles of doing no harm and, um, and compassion and karma, etc., uh, are waking us up. And now we see this mindfulness explosion uh, that is... in. Uh, infiltrating lots of different walks of life. So that's one that I've always been inspired by. And another that I'll, I want to share with you uh, comes from uh, another Tibetan prophecy. And this is uh, from Joanna Macy uh, sharing about her work with uh, Tibetan masters, one particular Chogy- uh, Chogyal Rinpoche, on what's called the Shambhala prophecy. I just want to share it with you. There comes a time when all life on earth is in danger. Great barbarian powers have arisen. Although these powers spend their wealth in preparations to annihilate one another, they have much in common weapons of unfathomable destructive power and technologies that lay waste our world. This is a, a, a Shambhala prophecy from years, many years ago. In this era, when the future of sentient life hangs by the frailest of threads, the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. You can't go there, for it is not a place. It's not a geopolitical entity. It exists in the hearts and minds of the Shambhala warriors You can't recognize a Shambhala warrior when you see them for they wear no uniforms or insignia and they carry no banners. They have no barricades on which to climb to threaten the enemy or behind which they can hide to rest or regroup. They do not even have any home turf. Always they must move on the terrain of the barbarians themselves. this prophecy continues now the time comes when great courage moral and physical courage is required of the shambhala warriors for they must go into the very heart of the barbarian power into the pits and pockets and citadels where the weapons are kept to dismantle them to dismantle weapons in every sense of the word they must go into the corridors of power where decisions are made The Shambhala warriors have the courage to do this because they know that these weapons are mano-maya, they are mind-made. Made by the human mind, they can be unmade by the human mind. The Shambhala warriors know that the dangers threatening life on earth are not visited upon us by any extraterrestrial power, satanic deities, or preordained fate. They arise from our own decisions, our own lifestyles, our own confusions, and our own relationships. <clears throat> so, in this time, the Shambhala warriors go into training in the use of two weapons. What weapons? The weapons are compassion and insight, both are necessary. You have to have compassion because it gives you the juice, the power, the passion to move. It means not to be afraid of the pain of the world. Then you can open to it, step forward, act. But that weapon by itself is not enough. It can burn you out. So you need the other. You need insight into the radical interdependence of all phenomena. With that wisdom, you know that it is not a battle between good guys and bad guys because the line between good and evil runs through the landscape of every human heart. With insight into our profound interrelatedness, our deep ecology, you know that actions undertaken with pure intent have repercussions throughout the web of life beyond what you can measure or discern. By itself, that insight may appear too cool, too conceptual, to sustain you and to keep you moving. So you need the heat of compassion. Together, these two can sustain us as agents of wholesome change. They are gifts for us to claim now in the healing of our world. So our practice, as we've been doing here, internally has been to embrace all the demons inside, all the confusion, all the forces of, of attachment, aversion, and ignorance, and to learn how to, compa- to hold them with uh, compassion and understanding. And that's how transformation becomes possible. And as continuing yogis, you have one more month to keep deepening that understanding of how you can hold all the places inside that are hard to accept and embrace them with compassion and wisdom and understanding the habits of mind, just causes and conditions, just conditioned habits. And those who are going out into the world tomorrow, Hopefully, you see the process as the same to relate wisely and respond skillfully to those same forces of greed, hatred, and delusion that are um, so prevalent in the world and hold them with compassionate understanding as well so that there can be a skillful response. And this takes humility as you do this, rather than thinking, you know, oh, I've got all the answers, you know. But to see that you have the same inside of yourself, as the Shambhala prophecy says, here's another way that uh, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, if only it were all so simple If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. Martin Luther King says, you have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. You have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. Longfellow, a famous quote, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. Hillel, do not judge your fellow man until you've rested in his place. So to see this cultural conditioning and understand it um, can have, uh, give us a greater understanding what we're all up against. And I wanted to share with you um, one particular instance that really has struck me. This was, um, came out this year, um, Richard Nixon's, one of his two main henchmen's, one could say, in the Nixon era, was John Ehrlichman. If you're old enough, you remember John Ehrlichman and Bob Haldeman. And this is an interview that came out 30 years later, where he was talking about the Nixon White House. He said, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and the black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So there's many ways that we're being manipulated both consciously and unconsciously. And then as a consequence, some statistics. Whites have uh, comprise 60, 64% of the prison population, and 39—sorry, 64% of the population, and 39% of the prison population. Blacks comprise 13% of the U.S. population and 40% of the prison population. And there are on and on. I, I don't have time to read all the statistics, but it's it's quite eye, eye-opening. But I wanted to share with you a really inspiring, for me, story of somebody who, although the subject of that conditioning, um, uh, just showing that one can rise above the conditioning uh, no matter what. And this is from... um, This is the valedictorian speech of uh, a man named Sean Kyler, who graduated um, valedictorian from something called Hudson Link for Higher Education uh, and Mercy College. And a friend of mine, one of my closest friends growing up, his partner uh, was very instrumental in putting on uh, in in uh, helping develop this Hudson Link um, College for. uh, for prisoners. And so that's how I first found out about this. And you can Google Sean, Sean Kyler, K-Y-L-E-R, his valedictorian speech, because I can't really do it the justice that, uh, that comes through in his words. But this is a bit of his story. This is his speech. We come here to celebrate achievement over failure, perseverance over hesitancy, better tomorrows over the worst of our yesterdays. We are no longer the people we were when we first took our step on this academic journey. We do not perceive or experience the world in the same manner we once did. Our cognitive ability as well as our behavior has undergone a change, a transformation. This transformation is not so much a metamorphosis into someone new, but actually a reconnection to our authentic self, that person we were before our response to life situations, detoured us from the socially acceptable path to success. And then he, uh, I'm just going to summarize a bit and go on. He, he says that he always loved school but was shy about succeeding because of peer pressure. Uh, And in his adolescence, he would get good grades, but hide them from his friends, lying to them or saying he just got lucky so that they would continue to accept him. Now he continues, At some point, my faulty thinking turned into my reality, and my academic pursuit was left on the side of the road. With my new reality, the acceptance of my friends became the most important thing to me. I was blinded by the desire to be accepted and I ultimately became a follower. I had to live with shame for 21 years until life presented me with an opportunity to mend my mother's broken heart and a chance to rectify my misplaced values and misplaced loyalty and my faulty thinking. This college gave me a chance to ask for mercy. And then he says, one professor asked him, how do you plan to touch the world? My answer is clear now, he says, by using this experience to help as many people as I can to taste education's sweet elixir. And one teacher told him, any great change must, ex- must exa- expect opposition because it shakes the foundations of privilege. He thanked another teacher in his address who solid. Whose solid toughness provided the discipline he needed to not fall apart and not fall short. I fully accept the philosophy, he said, that in order to change a person's behavior, must first change the way that person thinks. And then to his fellow graduates, today signifies the beginning of our duty to use this education to better not only ourselves but humanity. Our communities need us to help save our younger generation. It's obligatory that we respond. We must never forget that our supporters have extended charity to us. So it is incumbent upon us to extend even more charity to others. We can no longer sit idly by. We are now beacons of light that must steer those lost in the dark to the shores of positivity found in education we are now reconnected to our authentic self it is time to let that person shine to let that person reach for the stars and touch the world and then he finishes his speech by quoting this essay uh, that became his beacon anyway a tribute to mother teresa and he kind of paraphrases it and this is something that we can all Uh, in in our lives. He says, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you, but be honest anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy you overnight, but we have to build anyway, he says. The good you do today will often often be forgotten tomorrow. We're going to do good anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. We're going to be happy anyway. If you give the world the best you have, it might never be enough, but we're going to be giving the best we can anyway. Because you see, in the final analysis, it's between you and yourself and God. It was never between you and them anyway. So not to give up on anyone, no matter what side they're on or how different they might be. You know, Just like Angulimala, I think it was mentioned here, serial killer who uh, woke up from his, in d- his spell and became fully enlightened. <clears throat> this is uh, Nelson Mandela. I never lost hope that this great transformation would occur, apartheid ending, not only because of great heroes, but because of the courage of ordinary men and women. I always knew that deep down in every human heart, there's mercy and generosity. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Even in the grimmest times in prison, when my comrades and I were pushed to our limits, I would see a glimmer of humanity in one of the guards, perhaps for just a second, but it was enough to reassure me and keep me going. Man's goodness is a flame that can be hidden but never extinguished." So it's not so much a question of good guys and bad guys. You know, if as we've been understanding hopefully in our practice that um, it's not so much evil that's the problem, it's ignorance. It's not seeing clearly. And that's such a, uh, for me, a better way to reframe it rather than those bad guys or this bad person in here, it's just confusion that traps us and makes us do stupid or crazy things. And so the more we can understand that, not only within ourselves, but people who we have a very difficult time with and who might it might be so confusing to see why would anybody act that way. We're asked to um, love our enemies, as as Jesus says, or as uh, the Buddha says in the simile of the saw. I think I mentioned here, not to not to respond with hatred, uh, but to act skillfully. And see the ignorance behind the action. Hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred ceases by love alone, an ancient and eternal law. Whereas Martin Luther King says, uh, uh, I've decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. So, My um, um, practice, as much as I can, is to do what we do out of love and compassion. And it's important to get in touch with all the rage inside, all the despair inside, uh, but not be run by them, both in our personal process, in our Uh, cultural awakening. And that's where I think it's so important for all of us to hold a positive vision of the possibilities. Because if we don't, then we're just giving in and we're to more despair and we become agents of despair instead of agents of possibility and consciousness. As uh, Joanna Macy writes in her book, Active Hope, identifying the outcomes we hope for and then playing our part in bringing them about, focusing on what we deeply long for and then proceed to take determined steps in that direction and become an active participant in bringing about what we hope for. That means not only having a positive vision, but Expressing our caring and our uh, compassion. As um, Angelus Arian uh, says, action absorbs anxiety. And so just to find what really moves us in this world with all this dukkha and, and change that. Uh, make a difference in changing that suffering uh, because it feels good, as, uh, the, as the Dalai Lama calls it, selfish altruism. Yeah, it feels. He said that's a good thing because it feels good and it's expressing our practice, um, the fullness of our practice. Mm. Dr. Frederick Buchner. The place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So, to come from love, or as Julia Butterfly Hill, one of my great inspirations, says, a joyful responsibility. She's the uh, the one who sat up in the tree for for two years in uh, El Nino. Um, a, a very inspiring uh, woman, very dynamic speaker. And uh, she gives these talks and people are, I, I was blown away the first number of times that I've seen her, every time I've, se- I've seen her. And she says, people come up at the end of her talks and they say, oh, Julia, you inspire me so. And she re- responds, oh, that's so wonderful inspired you to do what? <laughs> so that's what we have to find and ask ourselves. As uh, Andrew Harvey says, follow your heartbreak. See where your heart is breaking and, and see how you can make a difference. Um, and for me... Um, one of, of a number of things that, that has touched me is uh, is climate change. But for you, it, it might be, and th- they're all in the same, they all are coming together now. We're starting to see it's not silos of suffering. They're all coming from the same forces. Uh, one of my uh, inspiring friends is a fellow named Bob Doppelt, who's one of the, one of the great um, voices for consciousness in uh, climate, um, around climate change. And he was, he was instrumental. He was one of the main um, people behind the Obama administration staying on point around climate change. And he wrote this wonderful book from, uh, called From Me to We for the general population using five Dharma principles without the jargon, that are needed for things to change. This is how he sees things changing. See the system you're part of, which is really understanding interconnectedness. Account for the consequences of your actions. That is, seeing how karma, how actions have consequences, and the law of cause and effect. Do no harm, Sila. Take responsibility as stewards for the planet, or express your caring and love for all beings and the planet. Compassion. And choose your destiny, intention. What we're doing here is cultivating all of those qualities inside and bringing them to the world that can't help but make a difference and you might think wow well i I don't know if it's happening fast enough but change can happen very quickly look at the me too movement or same-sex marriage and uh or all of a sudden or police uh, uh, brutality and violence not those things are still happening of course but it's no longer okay in the population, which is a huge shift. And as that conventional wisdom changes, anything is possible. I read a, a study from, um, I think it was um, Stanford. I've been trying to find the, the, this, the, the, the actual study for ages, but it stuck in my mind when I first read it that what's needed for... A shift in conventional wisdom is just a 7% shift in the population. Because most people are just kind of sitting around saying, oh what am I supposed to believe? You know. But when there is a, a tipping point, which doesn't mean you have to convince everybody, which means just enough people start to get it that there starts to be a tide, things can change really quickly. So as we're sitting here for this next month or as we're going out into the world to see our practice in this context of really making a difference in the world as... um, Martin Seligman from uh, the, the Father of Positive Psychology, he says, he wrote this book called Authentic Happiness. And he says, authentic happiness comes from finding our own gifts, discovering our own gifts and our strengths, and then expressing them in a spirit of contribution to the world. That's the greatest source of happiness. Or as uh, I forget if I mentioned it here, Uh, as it says in uh, Shantideva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, uh, that awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. And this takes a lot of humility as we are engaged in this process. But through that humility, We have confidence as we are standing in our truth and aligned with Dharma principles and held in sila. Uh, But the wonderful thing is to realize we're not alone. You probably got a sense of how supportive it felt to be here in, in this community, this Sangha. Well, we're not alone out there. Yeah, there's a lot of greed, hatred, and delusion, and there's never been as much consciousness as there is now in, in this world. And so uh, this is the secret to keep on participating in that and um, adding to that what Mandela calls the multiplication of courage. Mm. So I'll I'll close with a a poem, if I can find it, by Dana Faulds, called Sangha. Teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders for each other, each for the other, that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous to stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown and facing yet another fear together. That is nothing short of grace. So, Let's sit for a few moments.